Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast, where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I am Alex Wilhelm, and I am joined each and every week by Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors. Danny, how are you? I'm doing great. All the lights are on at 3 p.m. because there's no sunlight. That's New York City in 2020, I think. Yeah, after a couple of really beautiful days, it is raining here in Providence as well, and I am... uh, I'm already really pining for summer. I didn't think that was going to take this little time, but here we are. Uh, we're also joined by Natasha Mascarenas, one of TC's early stage and venture capital reporters, one of the best, I may add. Tasha, how are you doing? Thank you. Um, I'm doing okay. We already laughed a little bit today, so it's already better than like the past year. Yeah, w- one time we should actually release the 30 minutes of audio before the show and then see if we all get fired for it. That would be a, a good use of time. <laughs> all the blackmail that Chris Gates has on us. There'd be oh, a lot of Chris- bleeping of all my F-bombers. Yeah, yeah. The, our, the producer of the show, Chris Gates, has just a mountain of stuff that we can't put out. Anyways, past that, uh, we have a lot to get through this week. We are going back to the basics, back to the beginnings of the show. We have tons of funding rounds and some cool new venture capital funds that are a little bit spicy, actually. And we're going to start with on-demand grocery delivery. Tosh, what's up? Yeah, so Instacart, which we have been talking about a lot recently, has raised $225 million from DST Global and General Catalyst. And it's now valued at $13.7 billion. They have been a constant feature on equity and just like in my inbox because overnight during the pandemic, Instacart has gone from this luxury perk to being an essential service storyline we keep hearing. But they've also had a fair share of backlash from the shoppers it's hired. It's grown its shopper network by 250% and announced that plan in like one month, the first month of the pandemic. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, the new cash is coming at a time where its shoppers are also upset. I'm interested to see where it goes next. One thing that really caught our eye when we started talking about this round as a group is that it's a very small amount of money for a relatively large valuation change. I actually, I wrote this down, I lost it, but I think their valuation effectively doubled in this round from their preceding equity event. And $225 million at a $13.7 billion valuation is around... 1.6% of the company that was sold, which you won't really miss too much at that scale. So they kind of got free money and a huge valuation bump. It's a it's a surprising round. Denny, this is now the norm, I feel, for a lot of these post-unicorn rounds. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually think it looks like a, a position of strength, right? They don't need a huge amount of cash. They have raised a lot of money, I believe, almost $2 billion over the last eight years since they were founded in 2012. You know, it's an exceedingly high amount of money, but it is a, a labor-intensive business. It's not software, it's people. And I think the company is you know, setting itself up for some sort of M&A transaction, whether that's selling to one of the big retailers, whether that's going IPO. Um, they've said sort of publicly that they want to go towards a, a liquidity event. And uh, my guess is this is going to tie them over, you know, to whatever that is. Yeah, I don't know, Tosh, what you're hearing on this, but like just thinking about that, Danny, there's there's two ways they can exit, right? They can sell to a big player, like you said, or go public. Who's going to buy them? I feel like now their valuation has gotten to this to be so large that it's actually hard to figure out who would be an attractive purchaser. Also, one thing we looked up before the show is that uh, the Whole Foods purchase that Amazon did, which actually generated the very first equity shot years back, was also about $13.7 billion. So it's been valued about the same as as Whole Foods was. And I think that deal, as I don't know, Tosh, generally been received as, as intelligent by Amazon. Yeah, I mean, it was a badass deal. I know Instacart dropped out of working with Whole Foods as announced, I believe, either last year or in 2018. So, you know, be that as it will, I, I think Instacart is, Danny, to your point, it's like this people business versus a software business. So I think a lot of things can go wrong when you have that. Um, and we've seen with Uber and Lyft, just just like these very public meltdowns. So I'm 
I don't know. I'm, I'm dubious on Instacart's future, to be completely honest. And it it recently turned its first profit due to the unprecedented growth, as reported by the Information First, I believe. But it, I believe it was 10 million in profit. Let's see what happens a year from now. I don't like talking about them anymore than that. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> we have to do a couple more things about them. One is, uh, I think orders are up something crazy, like 500% year over year, uh, driven by this enormous COVID boom. We've seen a number of companies put together capital raises on the back of, um, uh, it sounds so gauche to say, but like pandemic-led booms in demand. And so I grabbed a couple of those. We saw Slice put together a big round, and we're presuming that pizza demand has gone up dramatically. We're seeing uh, Vendor, uh, which we'll get to later on, which is the software savings. Um, scanned it, which I had missed, actually contactless deliveries, raised a big round off the back of growth there, and on and on and on. So this is not abnormal. It's certainly, I think, one of the largest ones we've seen. My question for us is sustainability, because I think you're right, Tashi, it became an essential service when you couldn't go to the store and you were told to stay home. But when the world does eventually get back to normal-ish, say, not even normal, just, you know, closer to where we were, how many people can still afford to spend not only just markup on groceries, but also, you know, then delivery and then tip? as opposed to just schlepping their own body to the store to pick things up. Like how much does demand go down or does it not? Or is this just now, you know, the new way we go about doing things? It's it's funny because I think like before coronavirus, everyone was like, okay, which companies have contingency plans for these natural disasters? And now I feel like Instacart needs to have a plan for its own natural disaster, which will be when coronavirus stops. So the opposite of a natural disaster. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, what are they gonna do with all the shoppers? It, it's, it's not an answer to your question, Alex, but it's my thoughts on it in that it really will line up with how it, like, w will it just take away the hundreds of thousands of shoppers that is now hired overnight? Because that will also impact customer experience. And it's valued on its current yeah. level of demand and expected growth. So, I mean, new markets, <laughs> maybe? Uh, I don't know if the economics get a lot better. I know I know they have some other revenues, but anyways, it, it's going to be an interesting thing to watch. If they don't go public, I don't know what they do, but certainly, so as a small historical note, I've been covering Instacart since Apoorva uh, Mehta, the CEO, was like adding cities inside of the Bay Area and he would just Facebook message me like these little like updates. And so it's wild that they're now worth like $14 billion. It's just crazy. Wow. Also, yeah. I feel old by telling that story. All right. Um, we're going to go from the understandable and the grokkable to the ethereal and the... Uh, and the experimental, Danny, uh, what's going on with Pando? Yeah, so this is Pando, not the Pando you're probably familiar with, but a new Pando, Pando Pooling. And uh, what Pando is, it's sort of a fintech play. So you think very broadly about your career path. Many people are in what might be called winner-takes-all market. So we just talked about Aprova at Instacart. He is looking like he's going to do super well in his career. Many founders have not, right? So there's this huge difference between the top couple of folks in the industry common in, in winner-takes-all markets like athletics, sports, executives of large tech companies, equity for startups. And so one of the ideas here is like, how do you get upside for some of your friends on their career paths? So let's say you are friends with six or seven folks. You're all starting out in the VC industry. You're all in the tech industry. One of you might do really, 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 really well, but it's hard to know in advance who that's going to be. Same in, in baseball. Maybe you're all on the same college team. You're heading into the minor leagues. You know, you're paid thirty, forty thousand dollars a year. It's actually quite nominal in the minor leagues. But if someone makes it big in the, in the major leagues, it's a hundred million bucks. The idea here with Pando is why not create a contract that allows you to pool the upside for some of your friends, some of your peers, and actually incentivize each person person to to work together to create kind of better outcomes for the whole group. And so Pando uh, raised eight point five million dollars Series A last year, late last year, officially uh, announced and came out of stealth this week, led by Kathleen Utecht at Core Innovation Capital, along with Slow VC. The founders, Charlie and Eric, 
you know, they, they started in baseball and they found that it, it really brought a lot of attention there. So to give you a sense of this, people give either one to 2% of their income or about seven to 10% of their income above a certain floor. So ah, in baseball, okay. it's like a hundred K at the low end. Um, anything below hundred K doesn't get included, but anything above hundred K you take out a percentage and the average pool size is around 5.7. So let's say six people, you know, they're, they're going off into the, the market here. So I, I think it's a, an ambitious play. I have no idea. I don't know if I would back other people. One of the questions I asked them was like, you know, all these people are like arrogant, you know, ambitious folks, like who gives up their own upside, you know, and says, well, you know, maybe I won't do as well statistically, according to the economic econometric research. So I should balance out my portfolio. But, you know, what they found is, is that a lot of folks do have peers, you know, they like the mentorship that comes with the groups. And that's sort of been what the selling point is. It, to me, it sounded like a friendship nightmare and like dynamics in that way. So I'm interested to see why they think it's a venture backable business as well. Yeah, I think I think the friend nightmare thing is real. I think you could think of it as friends with benefits or well, maybe that's a bad expression, actually. But, sorry. Um, it's nothing but, but, like that, actually. Nothing to do with that whatsoever. It's an entirely different concept. Friends with, let's call it let's call it friends with upside. Um, you know, I, I think if you remember a couple of years ago, there was a lot of excitement around buying into the personal IPO. Alex, I mean, or, or Tosh, did, did you? you remember this whole like you could buy into the IPO of an athlete and it's like any endorsement deals they get you would get a percentage of that endorsement deal and essentially it was like a cash flow tool right like when you're super yeah. early in your career you don't make a lot of money so you say hey I'm gonna have a personal IPO of five million bucks and you get to buy 30% of all my lifetime earnings for the next 20 years and if you happen to score Michael Jordan and Michael Jordan's making 100 million a year you have this amazing return Right, it was trying to invent a new asset class. I think Pet is something very similar. Mm -hmm. It's it's sort of creating a new structure, a new new way of thinking about solving the winner takes all economy. But it's really small right now, of course. Yeah, but what I like about this is we all are kind of looking at it, going, "Eh, really?" And that's what I feel like a startup should be. That not everything has to be vertical SaaS. That's going to yeah. be just fine, no matter what happens in the world. This is actually, as I as I'm told to pronounce it, innovative, like an American. You can't say innovative like a British person or your wife makes fun of you. I like this is shaking things up. I wouldn't use it myself because I'm way too selfish and uh, afraid of sharing. But I, I do like that it's not something that I would have thought of. And also it's from the um, Stanford, it has money from Stanford StartX, which we don't see too often uh, in the rounds we cover on this show. And I like that group and that fund. That's right. So before their eight and a half million series A, they raised a 3.3 million seed in 2017. And the two founders came out of Stanford GSB. So they're Stanford founders. Yeah, it's a cool round. Tosh, you have a fascinating round that is actually SaaS uh, and some software, but I thought this was one of the most neat companies I've heard of in some time. So tell us about it. Yes, I'm excited about this company. So Athena raised $2 million in seed funding from investors like GSV, Homebrew, Village Global. And its sell is that it has a smarter anti-harassment software. So we've all been in spots when we're joining companies or even on an annual basis of like onloading a bunch of training and you can kind of passively click through it. Athena is kind of turning it and trying to do small bite-sized lessons that um, employees are sent on both a weekly and monthly basis. I believe it's $4 for each seat per month. So cheap. If you can handle like seaweed as snacks, you can handle Athena as a software. <laughs> so I, I was really happy to see the price point. Great founders as well. Yeah, I think uh, everyone agrees that the current set of software we use to learn how to be better humans and not be mean to each other is not very good. You do kind of one day of this. It's a huge slug of information and you just want to get through it because you're desperate to actually start doing your job. I, I think, you know, I probably could have learned more stuff if it was given to me in small bites along the way. And I think, especially given the current climate of trying to treat everyone with more respect and care, this is a pretty good play. It fits with the current kind of mood of the nation. 
so there might be outsized demand for it as we see kind of a secular shift towards, I don't know, be better behavior. I'm trying to think of the right phrase well, I, think, I think of it as, I, I think companies are trying to move beyond, here's a compliance video. You must watch the 30-minute compliance video to comply with the compliance law. Therefore, once you've had this checkbox, we have now complied with the compliance law with the compliance video and we're complied. <laughs> and they're moving towards a more engaging and happy approach of saying like, hey, how do we actually solve the problem, right? We're not, we don't want to create a harassing workplace. We don't want to create a place that everyone's bribing public officials. I just had to go through my anti-bribing compliance <laughs> video, and I learned that apparently bribing political figures is wrong, which I read the news. It seems pretty common to me, but uh, apparently, you know, <laughs> but I do think it's great to see, you know, moving from this mentality of like, well, we just need to check the box to saying, well, we actually just don't want a workplace that has harassment, right? So let's actually create tools that are going to be more used, that are going to be more user-friendly, because it might actually lead to positive behavioral change. And long-term, hopefully the, those employees, you know, obviously they're going to circulate to other companies. Maybe they'll take that tool with them. Maybe they transfer some of the knowledge they learned at one company to another, and it creates a positive workplace. The, the hard part when you're selling anti-harassment software is how do you prove how effective it is? Because so many victims of harassment don't report in the first place. We saw that with the Me Too movement, it's still happening today. We all read the news. So the company is currently doing studies to see if retention can be tied to smarter anti-harassment software. That gives me hope. And also they're betting on hopeful legislation to be a more sweeping reason beyond the goodness of companies' hearts to to onboard companies like them. Yeah, and on the money point, on the on the non-heart side of things, retention means you don't have to hire as many people again. You don't have to backfill as much, which means you don't have to spend so much money on recruiters and spooling up people with like uh, teaching them how the company works. And so it's a huge savings and you don't lose institutional knowledge. So just retention by itself as a benefit would be a huge perk and would make the relatively inexpensive SaaS cost of this super affordable. So hoping that it does well, surprised it only raised 2 million, expect to see this one raise more, I don't know, 12 months from now, something like that, if it goes well, that's my guess. Okay, we have one more small round. So on the SaaS topic, again, I know that I always bring up SaaS rounds, sorry about that guys, but this one's kind of an anti-SaaS round. It's a SaaS business that's trying to help other people save money on their SaaS subscriptions. It's called Vendor, V-E-N-D-R. And uh, old school equity listeners will recall that last October, uh, we talked about the company when it raised 2 million. It has now raised four more million dollars. And uh, the company stood out because they were essentially profitable at the time they raised 2 million. And we just don't see a lot of seed stage companies make money. That's not the time which many of them are even making revenue. So it was a surprise. Uh, the company is still essentially break even. Uh, it's raised 6.1 million to date total according to the um, the founder, and they have just about that much in the bank total. And critically, David Sachs, his craft ventures group, put a bunch of the money into this round. So kind of a, a high profile stamp of approval from someone in the technology world. Alex, can you clarify like who their main customer is and how exactly they make money as well? Yeah, yeah. So. I want to go back in time and answer this kind of time time series wise. So back in the day, the founder was doing kind of a consultancy to negotiate software purchasing for other companies. He would kind of show up there. He used to do software sales. And so he would show up and help you negotiate better rates and on your reups and also on when you bought net new software. This grew into a business and currently it's kind of a tech enabled service. So they're building out their own software to make this more and more efficient. And they're going to help more companies kind of save money and have faster reups of their software purchases. We all know that companies have like, you know, a dozen or a hundred software subs across their organization. So it's quite expensive. It's a really expensive part of their operational budget. So, and then the idea is with more money and more time, they write more code and then they go from being a tech enabled service to a service enabled tech company. And so that's kind of the switch they're going to make over the next 18, 24 months. But their customer, to your question, Tosh, is anyone who has a lot of SaaS subscriptions, which is really everybody now, I feel. Uh, if you run a business, you have a lot of tooling, there's a lot of software you need. 
And so I, I can see a lot of companies using this. It's not cheap though, unlike Athena, this is five and six figure per year costs. But if you buy a lot of software and this can save you, you know, a multiple of that, it makes a lot of economic sense. And also you can probably have fewer people in your procurement department. So a little bit nerdy, but around that caught my eye because of its profitability and also the people putting capital into it. I'm excited about it. SaaS. Never apologize for mentioning SaaS, Alex. <laughs> I, think, I think one of our old hosts who shall remain unnamed used to always mock me for my you know, affinity for SaaS. So I think I'm still a little scarred from those days. But let's, <laughs> let's put the rounds aside and talk about some big money. And we don't talk about corporate venture always on the show. It comes up sometimes. But today we have the spiciest corporate venture news I think I've ever heard. Danny, what's happening? That you've ever heard. Yes. Well, considering corporate venture news is about as exciting as a topic as you can have, the spiciest news <laughs> is like a like a little pepper at the In and Out, you know, or, or the the Denny's. Um, but uh, nonetheless, the news the news is uh, so uh, uh, thanks to a scoop from Ida Fried and uh, Kia Kokolacheva at Axios, Facebook is apparently going to build a new venture firm. So under what they call the new product experimentation team, they're going to launch. A, a an investment vehicle. So essentially some sort of corporate VC structure that will invest in startups. And what's interesting is that the focus of this is they, the for the fund is to basically spot the next big social app before it becomes big, was how it was described. Also today, uh, or I should say yesterday, was the news that uh, Chris Cox, the former head of product for Facebook, is returning to the company after a year hiatus to resume his role as chief product officer. And so I think I think there's something interesting that both of these pieces of news kind of came out almost within hours of each other. I mean, one was a scoop and one was sort of a, a press release, but nonetheless, they're, they're sort of rethinking about product building and connecting with the startup ecosystem after what has been, a, I think, a couple of years of very turbulent relations between the two. I think that's an understatement. So I was thinking about the framing of this and nearly everyone has a corporate venture capital arm now. Microsoft didn't have one for a long time. Eventually now has Microsoft Ventures and then that turned into M12, I think it's called. M12, um, M13, or M14. I can never keep the I think, three. I think it's M12. There, there I, are like several of these, all with M something. Yeah, well, by yeah, the way, we, that's we, a terrible branding choice by everybody. We know that Alphabet has capital G and then uh, GV. And, and, uh, and Gradient Ventures. Thank you. Yeah. The AI-focused so, uh, Google venture firm. Yeah, and so there's a lot of precedent for this. And so it's, it's almost like Facebook feels late to the party. It's not like Facebook doesn't look at startups, take their ideas and have a self-serving arm of some sort. Like, what is their first investment going to look like? What kind of startup will come to Facebook and want Facebook's help, considering its reputation? I don't know. Well, notoriously, I mean, Facebook has used uh, its product known as Onava, which was an acquisition made, I want to say five, six years ago, maybe seven, to collect data on all the other startups going on basically in the United States. So it had a variety of different tools, including, I believe, some sort of traffic monitoring tool. And what that allowed Facebook was to basically have like, function level data inside of uh, apps. So like they knew how many Uber rides were being called. They knew how many dollars you were spending on Instacart. They knew, and they would know like, hey, uh, stories on some new app is super popular. And that would trigger a conversation inside the company to say, whoa, we need to take a look at this new feature or this new part. It, it wasn't even at the app level, it was below the app level. And I think now that Anova has been shut down due to a bunch of controversies, Apple has pushed off, Congress investigated it. I believe the FTC also looked at it. You know, I think I think they're actually looking for like we don't have these channels anymore. We don't have all this like secret intel of like what's going on. We need to find another way. And so I think they're going back towards the classic model of, hey, let's invest in some companies. Let's see what's going on. You know, and it's a little bit more uh, arm's length. Now the challenge is, is, as a founder, knowing Facebook's history of copying features, which is is among its most notorious. I think by far compared to Microsoft and Google, Facebook has been done the most of you know using mimesis to ca capture the features of other companies, zucking um, other companies. And and so like who who would take this money? I mean it's it's sort of 
you know, it's it's like sure if it's an option and it's the only, your only option, you're going to take it. But like, I don't know who's going to seek out Facebook money and be like, "That's the company I want to know everything going There's on." There's a in. negative selection bias here. The, the right. best companies will be the smartest companies, and therefore the least likely to take this money. The companies who are most desperate for the money, i.e., the worst companies, will take it. So I don't know how Facebook wins here unless they manage to say, you know, we promise not to be jerks. But I don't know if that's going to hold up. That's right. And I think the other thing is, is, you know, there's still an enormous amount of consumer investing, right? There's so much capital in consumer that isn't being deployed. I mean, there's a ton of consumer investors who can't find good things to invest in. And so to my mind, there isn't a need for more capital in the consumer space. There's ample capital, as we've saw, seen with Clubhouse and other apps that have kind of spiraled through the valley in the last couple of months. And so I, I just don't know who, who is being served by this. One test that will be cool to see is how exactly Facebook brands its venture arm and tries to pitch it to startups. I know with Google, for example, it like renamed from Google Ventures to GV to maybe take a step away from its rep, uh, like the Google, <laughs> the Google chokehold and a couple other CVC funds have done the same. So I'm interested to see how Facebook brands itself or even tries to. I mean, but think about it this way. Like, so we all saw this news and we were all like, ooh, ooh, interesting. And we all went straight to the nefarious angle. Like that was the first thought we all had was, how is Facebook gonna use this to collect information it can't in other ways to better crush the market and maintain you know, a vice grip on the social app world that exists? And, and founders, not dumb, usually, you know? So they're gonna have the exact same set of thoughts. So I, I agree, their branding will be fascinating. The amount of money will be fascinating. We're all thinking about this in the context of an early stage fund. This could be a late stage fund, we don't actually know. I presume it's going to be rather early, but you know we're jumping a little bit to conclusions. The job posting just said it millions of dollars, which could be uh, a typo off by one letter. Well, it is part of the new product experimentation team, so I think it's very implied that it's very early, and it could be something as simple as an accelerator. I also think one of the things that was not included in this sort of job description that was pulled by Facebook is it could be international, right? It could actually be targeting markets True. where WhatsApp is super successful, so India, Africa, LATAM, other places around the world where Facebook hasn't had as much coverage, but maybe wants to dive in and there's less of a robust ecosystem, so it may have nothing to do with Silicon Valley whatsoever. Yeah, and on the, on the Chris Cox thing, you know, We've all been reading the tweets about his return and kind of what that might mean for Facebook and all that. I'm curious, and this is a bit of conjecture for me, so I don't you know, really know what I'm talking about, but I'm curious if he might be able to, by bringing his presence back to the firm, chart kind of a new course with how Facebook interacts with other companies. And if so, maybe this has a higher chance of success. Now, that's a reach. I'm reaching to find something nice to say, but that's, that did cross my mind as a possible positive in this kind of conjoined announcement we just saw. Yeah, he left because he disagreed with Mark. So I assume his return maybe means there was some shift there. Well, you um, know, having more than one person run a company that uh, has two billion monthly actives probably makes some sense as opposed to having a single dictator. Call me in favor of democracy, if you will. All right, uh, we have one more fund to get to. Uh, this one actually has a dollar amount attached to it. Tosh, uh, who's raising and how much? Yeah, so my former colleague, Marianne Azevedo, wrote a story earlier this week about Collab Capital targeting a $50 million fund to invest primarily in Black founders. Uh, they are on track to close $10 million of that targeted 50 total in August. The, the reason I'm interested in them is, one, always here for more money for Black founders and other diverse founders, but also if they do close, they're kind of defying the odds in a way. I recently wrote a story about how the recession could make some LPs turn more to legacy funds than newer VC funds, thus taking away some of these diversity efforts. If Collab Capital gets that 50 million though, it's proving that LPs are actually putting the money where their mouth is. Question about that. 
Um, I think we've, so I don't know, I might be behind, but I've heard a lot of the VC community talk about the importance of diversity and doing better and hiring uh, more diverse partners and all that. I haven't heard much from LPs, which is, you know, family offices and university trusts and so forth. And have, have there been, has there been noise from LPs that they're going to do better or have they been usually quiet? Like they tend to be. Investors off the record have told me about how their LPs are, you know, basically freezing up any any movement and it's an excuse to not do anything new right now so i haven't heard anyone on the record talk about and i have not okay. talked to any lp on the record about this though okay because one thing that we, we forget is that if you think that the vcs are kind of old and hidebound and conservative wait till you meet the lps they're like one level up on the old conservative chart and i think it's i think it's uh i think this is a great fun i, I read the, i read the story that marianne wrote mary's a tremendous reporter huge fan and I was just, you know, people will keep saying how they're going to make, you know, use their influence and money to make a difference. Well, here's a place you could put some money into work that will make an impact. This will put more capital into black founders, which I believe the story said raised 1% of VC uh, last year or the year before, some, some tiny percentage recently. So, you know, this is money that's going to directly change the ratio and make it better and make it a bit more equitable and probably also do quite well because I bet black founders have been historically underserved and therefore that's a lot of potential there. So... I'm I'm happy to see it. Just disappointed that they're only going to put together 10 million by August. I, I was hoping for more like 50, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think this will, I, I don't want to put unnecessary pressure on them, but I'm looking at them as a way to see the accountability that perhaps could come out of different efforts being sprayed and preyed upon um, from non-Black VCs right now. Like I'm looking to see like, there are some VCs that can afford to invest in funds. So do that then. You, you don't have to be the institutional old LP to invest in a, in a firm like Collab Capital. So yeah. Yeah, I, also, think I think it actually sounds like it's, it's moving pretty quickly. I mean, frankly, first funds generally take 18 to 24 months to build. So, I mean, if they're able to raise 20% a few months, like I actually think that's a really strong sign out of the gate. Yeah, um, it's always really hard to raise a lot of money, particularly the first time and particularly for, um, you know, both, all three of these are, are uh, multi-time founders, um, operators, and um, but they're starting out on their venture careers. And this is sort of the always kind of the LP VC challenge, right? Is is how do you bet on folks without the track record there? Yeah, the managing partners are Jules Solomon Burks, Justin Dawkins, and Barry Givens. And uh, they're Atlanta-based. This fund is going to be based in Atlanta, which got me thinking about uh, the fund I wrote about in April. Sorry, the round I wrote about in April. Single Ops, which was a vertical uh, SaaS company focused on the green industry, which is like lawn care and so forth, building software for companies that uh, take care of the outdoor spaces. And so I was surprised to see cool SaaS coming out of Atlanta. But apparently, if this fund's going to be based there, I'm just behind on how important Atlanta is to the startup scene. So I like to, I like to, to learn things and be corrected. So that was exciting. I think, ladies and gentlemen, that is the conclusion of this week's Equity Show. Uh, we will be back Monday morning. Hopefully, it'll be better weather on the East Coast. Uh, and then we'll talk to you then. But in the meantime, Tosh, Danny, thank you as always. And we'll be right back. And uh, we have here at the bottom of the notes, Danny, who is John Galt? I don't know why, who John Galt is. There a reference to, why, why is there an Ayn Rand reference? I don't reference think I added our... that. I don't, <laughs> okay, I don't think anyone mind. on this show actually put that there. So. <laughs> Cut this out. I, I was trying to make fun of Danny again. Didn't work. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure our producer dumped that in there. Uh, well, now this is actually all Chris's fault by definition then. Um, yep. Chris just admitted to it. He creates his own work. Be well, thankful. <laughs> I was curious what the blooper was going to be this week. We have now found it. Anyways, pausing and then moving on. 